A reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Rules for holy living. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Sheena. Um, what a reading. Whew. There would be a series for a few months. Um, we'll come to it in a moment or two. But I want to take you back to the children's... I think it's interesting. Oh, here he goes. Um, I get worried myself when I go off on tangents because I never sometimes come back. But I think it's interesting when we come to what we will draw out today and we already have with the children. Let the word of God dwell in you richly there in verse 16 of what Sheena has read for us in Colossians 3. It's um, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. And I'm hoping that we see that the songs, the prayers, the readings, the children's talk, as well as the sermon, is all teaching. It's all theology. In fact, you're not going to hum my sermon when you go home. But you may just sing along some of the songs that we sing. And that's where you'll carry the Word of God to dwell in you richly. So the choice of hymns, the way we put the service together brings to us a whole range of things outside of the sermon. In fact, the sermon could be absolutely useless and we would still go away fed. 
But let's pray that it won't be before we read from Matthew chapter 7. Our God, in what we were saying to the children about this word of God dwelling in us richly, becoming an extension of our lives so that it comes to mind, it feeds our actions without us even thinking. We pray, Lord, that these next moments would be used as one of those means that you allow or make the word of God dwell in us richly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, exposition, you might say, of what we sang with the children, which is that bit right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has taught them all this stuff, and then he uh, comes to his conclusion. And uh, he says, Eugene Peterson translates at the end of Matthew 7 as this, These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on the solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, the tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But... If you just use my words as Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. If you use my words as a Bible study, And don't work them into your life. You're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. This is the sermon I preached that your hearing committee heard. So there's a couple of things going to go on here. They're going to say more repeats than the BBC. And you're going to say, really? They picked him on that sermon. (laughs) It has been tweaked, of course because I've been in here all of 10 days, so I've been able to apply it on some level to where we are here in Fitzroy. But these words that Eugene Peterson uses in Matthew 7, I think, have something to tell us about our relationship with the Word of God. And so we're going to go on that journey today. And I want to put it together with a quotation from my favorite novelist, probably Douglas Copeland. He's got a wonderful new book out called Generation A, but I'm not going to get into that at the moment. Um, Another, maybe Sunday night, we'll come back to Copeland. But in one of his books called Hey Nostradamus, um, he is talking about, there's a Christian characters, a few Christian characters in that particular book. And in that book, at one point early on, he says this, in the end, you're judged by your deeds, not your wishes. We are the sum of our decisions. In the end, you're judged not by our wish, our deeds. No, in the end, we're judged by our deeds, not by our wishes. We are the sum of our decisions. Now, first of all, let me theologically get this right. Copeland nor me are not saying the ultimate judgment before God is about our deeds, not our wishes. No, last week, grace-centered, wonderfully when we come before God, The judgment will be the grace of God through what Christ has done for us, 
that will be how we'll be ultimately judged before God. This is a different kind of judgment. This is the judgment of the people around us. This is how our neighbors see us. This is how our family members see us. This is how the congregation will see the minister, the minister will see the congregation, etc., etc. We're not going to be judged by our wishes, what we would like to do or what we would like to be. We're going to be judged or we're going to find people identifying us by those things that we do. The people around us here, Holy Lands, University, I haven't got my judgment on where I am actually in the church at the minute, but Botanic Avenue to the city center, people that own the hotel beside us, the many charities that seem to be filling the houses around about us. How do they look at Fitzroy? Well, we need to understand that they're not going to judge us by what we wish to be. They're already judging us by what they see us do. And Christ will ultimately be judged then by what they see the body of Christ on University Street do. Not because we sing great songs or we have many great bands. Not because we have small groups and house groups where we study the Word of God and we think about the Word of God applying to our everyday lives and the culture around us, etc. We'll not be judged by our great preachers, and there are some. They preached here for the 14 months that it was vacant. They're still in the congregation. Don't panic. Once my ego's over, I'll get them back up. But we'll not be judged by the words preached on a Sunday morning. We will be judged not by our wishes or our creeds or our doctrines. We will be judged by how they perceive us in their interaction with us. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said we need to make the word of God live in our lives. Sermon on the Mount is fantastic and someday again we'll open that up over a period of time. Uh, Just before I left chaplaincy, Mark Cunningham, one of our interns, just one night read the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't read it. Well, he had sort of cues up behind him, but he was a drama graduate with a little bit of theology, and he, one of the evenings, we just did the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish. No interruption, no human uh, ideas of what Jesus was trying to say, just what Jesus was trying to say. It was marvelous. And when we get to the end of this radical revolutionary manifesto, we've heard the Word of God, we've heard Jesus speak, and Jesus says to them, it's not if you've heard me speak today that makes you different. It's if you make this live in your lives. You need to forgive your enemies. You need to not be like the Pharisees when you pray. You need to be salt and light. You need to store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Now, you've heard those words, but you'll not be judged by your wishes, guys. Your life will depend on these words becoming a part of your life. I have a bit of a fear for our relationship with the scriptures. And it comes from a few things that I'm going to share with you. And we're going to learn today maybe by the negative. So as I share some of these negative stories about how I hear people relating and myself relating to the word, we need to put them right. 
The first one uh, happened to me over one of these in the old days before Facebook. We had email kind of groups that you sent emails and it went out. Uh, they maybe still have these forums. And ours was a forum that was Northern Irish, American. We didn't know some of the people in the forum. Sometimes it got a little bit heated because in, on the internet, when you say anything by email, nobody sees your smile. Nobody sees your ironic eyebrow raised. Nobody feels the warmth of how you're saying things and it can get a wee bit off. And I got out of this group because of uh, those issues. But this girl one day said on her email, she said, it was Thursday. And she said, oh, she says it's Thursday. And when I came in from church on Sunday, I left my Bible in the washing machine in the utility room and I haven't opened it since. I feel bad. And I thought, how lovely it would be to leave the Bible on the washing machine. If I could do that, my life would be so easy. Because the Bible should not be a book of words that you leave on the washing machine and don't have to think about it again because you haven't opened it. It should be dwelling in us richly. The words should be becoming a part of our lives. So that in every situation that we're in during the week, the pages of this book are not on a washing machine somewhere in the utility room, but they are open in our minds and in our hearts. All kinds of situations that arise that immediately my mind is drawn to a book in the Bible, a phrase in the Bible, a passage in the Bible that allows me to navigate through that situation even if the book that I own with the words contained in it are on a shelf somewhere. They shouldn't be able to stay on a shelf. They should be part of our lives. So you shouldn't be able to leave it down. It should always be going with us. I think the idea was that unless she read the Bible, she had no relationship with it. Bad, bad, bad understanding of the Scriptures. Up until the last century, probably very few people had Bibles in their house. They couldn't read before that. They certainly didn't have daily reading notes. So the Word had to be something that was more a part of them. It had to dwell in them richly, as we keep going back to in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Then I had someone who came to me and they said, oh, I need to talk to you. And uh, I said, that's fine. I get paid exorbitant amounts of money to talk to people. So we went for a coffee and I said, what's the problem? My relationship with God's in a mess. I said, pretty serious topic. What do you mean by that? And she said, I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I'm going, yeah, yeah. And your relationship with God? Because she confined her relationship with God to the amount of moments in the week that she had the Bible open in her lap reading it. Now, please, Northern Ireland, got to say what you don't say as well as what you say. The ultimate result of this sermon is not that we stop reading the Bible or we leave it on a washing machine. It's quite the opposite. What I'm trying to say in this is it has to come out of those book, that book and become a part of us. And to do that, we've got to read the Bible. But it's not our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is so much more than that. And whether you've read the Bible 
This morning at four o'clock, I can see those of you who are up for three hours of Leviticus before you come to the ethical shopping morning. Or whether you haven't read it in weeks, God's relationship with you is not judged on how much you've read it. You should be reading it more. We all should be up at four o'clock, shouldn't we? No. But it has to become something that dwells in us rather than something that we think is the thermometer for our relationship with God. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. I was talking about some of these things at Greenbelt one year, and I started to talk. Greenbelt's a Christian arts festival in England, and I started to say it's like Greenbelt. There's all these places you can go and eat. There's Thai eating, and there's bangers and mash, and there's the, the pie factory, and there's French chips and French, all kinds of French potatoes. They do a lot more things in France with potatoes than we think. And you can, all this stuff. And I said, now, when you come to Greenbelt, you don't think, oh, I'm going to Greenbelt. I'm going to go and have a sausage and chips. The food's very necessary at Greenbelt to sustain you while you do the stuff that you're at Greenbelt to do. And the word of God is very necessary to us to have a relationship with God and to do the things that God would want us to do. But it's not an end in itself. It's merely a means to an end. And we've got to get the right relationship with it. Third story. I was listening to a sermon once, not in Belfast, so it's not Derek's fault. And the minister said, um, don't you hate it, he says. In fact, he was probably saying that he was despising us because you watch four hours of television a night and you only give ten minutes to read the Bible. And again, I wish. The compartmentalizing of the Scriptures, of saying that this is the Bible and this is television. This is the Bible and this is the novel we read. This is the Bible and this is the music we listen to. This is the Bible and this is our vocation. We can't compartmentalize the Bible like that. If it was dwelling on us richly, then every time we see a movie, every time we listen to a song, every time we read a novel, every time we read the newspaper or a magazine, every time is open for Bible study. Because the Word of God that's dwelling in us richly will caress and collide with what we're watching, what we're listening to, and what we're reading. We, um, on one of our chaplaincy retreats, decided to watch Love Actually. Interesting. And uh, then have a discussion about it the next day. And when we said, uh, in Castlewell and Castle, where we're going in January... We're going to show love actually and then we're going to have a discussion about it the next day. We had students who come up to us and say, you can't do that. You can't show love actually. A few rude bits. And actually, there's one of the problems that our ability to read the culture and read movies, we need to think about that and no doubt you'll get a lot of that over the course of the next number of years. But most people who watch the movie missed the point that was very, very clear if we were watching closely enough. They said, you can't watch Love Actually. And we said, why? Have you seen it? And they went, oh, we've seen it, it's great. (laughs) Now, we've seen it and it's great, but you can't watch it in a Christian community to bring the word of God to it. Do you see my fear? 
that we start compartmentalizing things so that we can watch this and switch off this and then we turn on the Bible after it but we don't bring the Bible to bear on this. It's a bad, faulty relationship with the Scriptures. And it's why I love this verse that I keep going on and on about in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Somebody has said, if you do all the 3 and 16s, they're interesting verses. But this is a great line of a verse, half a verse. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Now, if we read Colossians, we might get a chance over time, you find that the Word of God and the Scriptures and truth and knowledge are wrapped up in the fabric of the entire book. Here's a community of believers who are under Caesar's every time they turn around, Caesar's beaming down at them from statues and coins and and everything. And Paul's writing to them to try and bring the subversive truth of Jesus into their lives so that it would dwell in them so richly that they would be able to stand against the pressures to worship other gods, to worship Caesar, to give in to heresies. So if we had time to go through it, you can find in chapter 1, 5, and 6 where faith and hope from the Word bear fruit in our lives. And 9 and 10, the growing in knowledge changes their lives. Chapter 1 and verse 25, Paul's talking about proclaiming this truth. Chapter 2 and verse 8, this is the truth and the knowledge that will help us stand against heresy. Chapter 3 and verse 2, set your mind in higher things. How would you possibly do that? You do that because the Word of God directs you to those higher things if it dwells in us richly. It's a theme throughout the book. But what I love about it here is that it's almost thrown out that if we want to do all these things that Sheena read for us that are amazing in our discipleship lives that where the source of it's going to come is from the Word who is Jesus ultimately, not 66 books in the Bible. Jesus is the Word. The Bible directs us and leads us to the Word and is the river deep within us that comes up, fountain might be a better illustration, out into our lives to do all these things that Paul has been suggesting we might do in the rules of holy living in chapter 3. John Stott has said, how can we develop a Christian mind which is both shaped by the truths of historical biblical uh, Christianity and acquaint it with the realities of the contemporary world? He says, we refuse to become either so absorbed in the word that we escape into it and fail to let it confront the world or so absorbed in the world that we conform to it and fail to subject it to the judgment of the word. Let me stop there for a moment. Hope she doesn't mind. But we're waiting for Louise to, you know, give us another little Vanderland. And we're over the time. And every night at tea time, in the months, though we're not in the months, we keep saying, no word from Brent today. And there's Louise. Now we're upstairs at the ethical shopping, which you're all going to immediately after the service to get your cup of coffee and change the world. If you don't want to change the world, if you don't want to serve the Lord, go on home. But uh, if you want to make a difference, get yourself upstairs. Um, We were upstairs before it because we were here before church looking at what we were going to buy. Um, How holy and pious are we? Uh, We were chatting and we were saying how babies really, all of us, none of us actually wanted to come out of the womb. Because it's so 
lovely in there. So comfortable. I mean, I can't remember, but I'm thinking that. And then suddenly you come out of the and there's this crying and bawling, which is just us, never mind the baby that's born. We have this idea that when we come out from that safe place into the reality of the world, there's all kinds of things affect us and hit us. And I think that Stott's on to that when he says that we can become so absorbed in the Word. We make it a bubble around us and we think about the Word and we debate about the Word and we can argue really well about the Word. And he's saying, no, 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 we need to have it dwelling as richly so as it comes out from behind the leatherback books and out from behind the walls and it starts to become applicable to all the contemporary events that are going on around us. He says, we need to listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, and resolved not necessarily to believe and obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. Double listening, he calls it. How we need to hear what's going on in the television and the radio, how we need to hear what's going on in the streets around us, in the lecture halls to this side, in the shops down this avenue, in all the homes going around here. We need to listen, and we need to bring the Word of God to that so that the gospel can be applied to it in powerful ways. So let's do that to finish. Let's think Fitzroy. We will not be judged by our profession, but our performance. The word is not to be admired within this building. It's to be obeyed outside it. We are not to fight for the word. The word is to become the value of what makes us go to fight the battles that we as a fellowship need to fight. How are we going to apply that in the Holy Land? How are we going to apply that to the commercial center that's not far from us and we lead down into? How are we going to apply that in the academic world of the university to the other side of us? We want this word to be central to everything that we do. We want to learn about it. We want to understand it. We want to discuss it. We want to read it. Not as a means to an end. Not as an end, but as a means to an end. Not as an end, but as a means to an end. Because we want to start the word dwelling in us richly. Not start, continue to be the vision that we have for the changing of the world outside. And that phrase that I keep going back to again and again and again. We want the word to help us to grow in a holiness that doesn't feed our own self-righteousness, but helps us feed all the needs of the world around us. We will not be judged by our wishes. It will be the sum of our decisions and deeds that will declare to this neighborhood, to the people who made the stuff upstairs, to those our missionaries will touch in all the corners of the world. They will decide whether Fitzroy deserves the name Christian because it wasn't us who started that. It was other people looking at what Christians did that named them Christian. They will decide 
whether we're followers of Jesus, whether the word is applied in our lives, or whether we just use it for Bible study. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the freedom to read your word. We thank you for the commentaries that we have available to us to help us to understand your word. And we pray that we would be individuals and a community who would be eager and hungry for your word, and that we would learn to understand who Jesus is through this book, by your Holy Spirit coming to lead us into all truth. But Lord, prevent us being those who would just read it. We pray that we would not be judged by our wishes, but that when we're judged by the sum of our decisions, by the actions that spring from our obedience to your word, that many would see Christ in our individual lives and in our life as a community of believers because we ask it in his name. Amen.